0: Welcome to the Startup Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Joyce Franklin. If you work at a startup or a company with a startup attitude, this podcast is for you. Each week, we talk to an expert guest about financial success and lessons learned on the journey to long-term security. My guest is Alan Leinwand who currently serves as the CTO of Shopify. When this interview was recorded, Alan was the SVP of engineering for Slack. His prior experience includes stints as CTO of ServiceNow and at social gaming company Zynga. And early in his career, he was training and writing code to help people build out the internet at Cisco Systems for seven years during their wild growth in the 90s. Alan has also been a founder, VC, board member, and advisor at many more companies. He is an expert in startups, strategy, product management, security, and scalability, to name a few. Knowing him for over 20 years, I think where Alan really excels is that he combines his technical knowledge to lead his teams to build great companies. Welcome, Alan. I'm thrilled you're here to share your knowledge.
1: Thanks, Joyce. Great to be here.
0: How did your prior roles lead you to what you're doing now at Slack?
1: As I've come up in my career, I started in the, the infrastructure space and I slowly moved, you know, in the technology speak, we say I slowly moved up the stack into the software space. And I think when you, when you look at my career and when I reflect back on it, it's always been about connections. Um, Cisco Systems was about building connections, physical connections, or the internet. Some of the startups I did, like Digital Island, were about connecting applications and connecting people to each other via applications. Zynga was about connecting people through games. ServiceNow is about building a workflow and connectivity and business processes. And here at Slack, it's, it's sort of the user interface side of those connections. It's giving people tools and mechanisms and a way to communicate faster, be more productive, make their work life more pleasant. So the journey for me has been around connections and connectivity, whether is that sort of the physical layer or the application layer, or now it's sort of the, the business layer.
0: So Alan, let's look at my four phases of startup life graphic. I created it based on interviews with over 65 executives and advisors for my two books. When you hear that sound, it means I'm jumping in to provide some additional context that did not come up in the interview with Alan. You can find the graphic that Alan is looking at by visiting jlfwealth.com. But here's a quick summary of the four phases of startup life. Phase one is laying the foundation, the exciting months or years spent launching your company, hiring the right team members, and identifying the product or service you'll focus on. Phase two is ramping up, where you're building your company towards a big wealth creation event like an IPO, sale, or a merger. That event, also known as a liquidity event, is the payoff for all your hard work and proves that your company is valuable. Phase three is called realizing the dream and it's whatever follows the liquidity event. It varies widely. For some companies in phase three, day-to-day work looks just like phase two. For others, their entire team may be reorganized or merged into an acquirer staff and the mission of the team might change. Alan, for your entire career, you've been involved in fast-growing companies. What phase was the most challenging for you and why?
1: The thing that drives me every day is the ability to scale and the ability to move things up from tens of users to hundreds of users to tens of millions of users. Um, I actually think all the phases are challenging. I I don't think there's any that you sort of can coast through. Uh, they all have different challenges themselves. If you look at your phase one, laying the foundation, I think there the idea around raising capital, selling the dream, getting people to think about how you allocate a limited set of resources is, is a very interesting phase. One that takes a lot of mental dexterity and a lot of vision. Think phase two in terms of ramping up, it's selling that vision, it's making sure that you can bring other people on board, it's making sure you can motivate the team as they're going through that building phase. And sometimes that's some of the more exciting phases, you're creating enterprise value, you're putting a board together, you're raising maybe additional funding, you're driving the business and getting those first big wins and really starting to see business momentum.
0: You've experienced multiple liquidity events and have stayed on in phase three to create enterprise value and continue motivating your team.
1: There tends to be a dichotomy sometimes between folks that were in the company pre IPO and folks in the company post IPO. People think the IPO is, or the liquidity event, maybe the M&A transaction, whatever the liquidity event is, they think that's the end. Uh, 99 times out of 100, that's the beginning. And that's where you're sort of beginning to grow value. And if you look at the value of a lot of companies grown over time, it's usually post that liquidity event. So how do you, you know, whether it's stock price or whether it's team growth or whether it's setting up comp bands or whether it's hiring, um, diverse personnel and making sure equity and comp are, are egalitarian across the team. There's a lot of different things that, that happen across that, that phase three. And then you know, as you enter into the phase four, the, the what's next, I, I think that there's a lot of flexibility and choices as, as you bring up. For me, when I enter that phase four, I keep thinking about how do we drive greater scale? How do we drive into the next phase? I guess I have never really left phase three because I'm trying to say, and um, there are parts of phase four that are interesting to me, of course, Um, you know, whether it is travel or charitable activities or passion projects, or I did do the venture the venture world for a while. But to me, phase two and phase three is really the exciting time. It's the scaling, growing, building for scale, having that liquidity event, uh, whatever it ends up being. And then continuing to drive that motivation, continuing to drive the team, and, and really just building a much bigger brand or a much bigger business that I think most people would think about.
0: I think you're pretty unique, Alan. When I talk to non entrepreneurs for my book, they stop working for the company in phase four. What do you think makes you so curious? Why do you want to stay on and keep building the existing company?
1: Yeah, so most of the companies I've been at, I've been been there long past the liquidity event, because again, I, I like the, the scaling part. But um, i also say, I, I hope I'm unique. If there's another one of me out there, um, <laughs> we got a bigger problem. Um, so I'll just say that. I think that the the challenge of scale has always been one that's fascinated me. And to me, scale comes in a couple of different ways. It's scaling of an algorithm, so making a complicated problem scale up. Um, it's scale in terms of building for scale, whether it's you know, servers or nodes or application deployments or endpoints or users, that's always an interesting scalability problem. It's scaling for teams in terms of team structure, teams organization, driving those teams forward. Um, it's also scaling around market impact. And the one thing that that is interesting to me, if you look at my career, you'll find that I, I haven't gone back and done the same thing over. What I've done is I've done what I like to call like a little bit of a tangent off My previous steps, everything has been just, you know, five degrees separated from what I've done before. Cisco is clearly the internet digital island was a shift into applications on the internet and content distribution networks. And then from there, shifting into things like Zynga. That was gaming, but based on the internet and based on software distribution. And then ServiceNow was, again, moving up the stack in terms of enterprise workflow based on the internet, based on applications. And everything's just been a, a slight tangential shift for me. And that's what I find appealing. So for me, it's it's leveraging what I've used in the past and then leveraging that into something that's tangential. And it just, like I said, a five, 10 degree shift of what I've done before. And that's where the the challenge really is. Um, you know, I'm not motivated personally to like go off and do a completely different career. Um, that's the part that's really interesting to me. Zynga was fascinating because you know social gaming was brand new. Uh, ServiceNow was fascinating because of large enterprise software. We're sort of going through a transformation to the cloud. Um, Slack has been fascinating because we're changing the way work gets done. We're changing the way people collaborate. Uh, that's just been a, a huge problem space to solve. And that's the part that um, is intriguing to me.
0: And what advice would you give your 30-year-old self just starting out in your career?
1: Um, first of all, go deep on something. I, I, I give a lot of people this advice, and that is to think about where can you be that subject matter expert? Where can you be that person that becomes a go-to entity in a given organization? I think that if you go deep on something, and I happen to go deep on the internet and networking, what would now today be called cloud computing, um, you find that those technologies and those patterns become very, very relevant to other markets. So the first thing I'd say is, don't be scared to go deep on something and don't feel like you're gonna get pigeonholed just because you are going deep on that particular technology area or that particular subject matter. The other thing I'd say is, there's many more things to come. Back when I was thirty, I was doing uh, Digital Island, and I just left Cisco. And I, I had a hard time seeing that there'd be two or three or four more steps in my career. I felt like I was putting all of my eggs into that basket, and I felt like I had to really hit the home run at that time. So I think I think I'd give myself a little more latitude to realize that you know careers are longer than perhaps you perceive when you're thirty. And then I said, I think the last thing I'd, I'd think through is. When you have those liquidity events, realize that you can take that those liquidity events and you can do financial planning in a way that gives you lots of optionality. I think a lot of people get their minds focused on: I had options before, I must have options going forward, or I like RSUs, I'm only going to do RSUs going forward. I, I think that as you as you start out younger in your career, you sort of have this feeling that what you're what you're being exposed to. Recency bias is what I was trying to say. You sort of have this recency bias, so what you're exposed to is is all there is. But the truth is, is as you go throughout your career, you'll learn more and you'll have more vehicles and more tools going forward.
0: After a liquidity event, it's wise to strategize your goals and if your resources will provide for them. If you have excess, then you can use the bucket strategy to protect your finances and reach your goals. Bucket one is the maintain bucket. This holds what you need to maintain your lifestyle. Never dip into this pile for extra angel investment capital or other risky ventures. It's crucial to make sure the assets in your maintain bucket to fund your future are invested in a prudent, risk-appropriate way. Bucket two is the risk bucket. The second pot contains exploration funds. You can use this money for angel investing, speculative investments, or starting a new company. Bucket three is the give bucket. If you're charitably inclined, the third pot is for making donations to your favorite causes. Alan, when we spoke before, you told me about your strategy for selling stock in your company. Do you remember what you said?
1: My strategy is to think about what the price target would be or what the liquidity I would want to get out of that particular uh, time and role would be, and then to more or less hold fast to that. I'm pretty committed to thinking through and not having seller's remorse or, or, you know, sort of 2020 vision to the past. There's a lot of people who think I want to sell and have X liquidity. And then maybe the company does two X, maybe the company does three X. And then they have sort of remorse. Oh, I wish I had held out. I wish I had done more um, holding. But the thing they forget is there's, hundred companies that had ended up at 0.1x or 0.01x. so I think I think you know if I was to reflect back last time we talked to us I would say probably my strategy would be to find a number that you're comfortable with if you hit it have a little bit of conviction about it and don't feel bad about selling primarily because if you' stay at the company you're probably going to invest more and you're probably going to get more uh, liquidity events in the future. And secondly, I think people make smarter judgments about liquidity events before the event, and they let emotion get tied up in, again, recency bias about price and trajectory of the stock and things like that going forward. I think it's, it's really important to set a goal, stick to the goal, and then be happy with it.
0: When working for a publicly traded company, consider setting up a 10B51 plan if your company allows it. These plans allow executives and employees to sell company stock without being subject to insider trading rules or blackout windows. Share price, number of shares to be traded, and dates are the triggers used for trading stock under a 10B51 plan. In Allen's example, he actively watches the stock to hit his target
1: have a price, write it down. I don't exactly hit that strike price all the time. I do have a little bit of local optimization on that day, but um, I'm usually pretty pretty happy with the event that occurred. Um, you know, you look at some of the companies I've been involved in, the stock of, you know, from the time I've done my initial sell, the stock has gone up significantly. No regrets, really. um, Because I've also been involved in organizations where from my initial sell, the stock has gone down pretty significantly in the future. so.
0: So can we talk a minute about Zynga? I was just looking at the stock price to prepare for our interview, and I saw that in 2012 when it went public, it had its high around March at the IPO and the low in August of the same year. Can you talk about any lessons learned being an executive there?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, Zynga is a great company, great leadership, great company, great space. I have lots of friends there and I'm a huge fan and honestly, I still play some of the games daily. I think that, you know, the market for social gaming was one that was interesting. The market for being able to attract attention to eyeballs on the web and monetize that is interesting and still continues to be interesting. Uh, when the company went public and it was a really euphoric momentous sort of event which i know everyone that was at the company you know myself included were, were very very proud of, of working at Zynga. Um, the stock did go through a, a bit of a roller coaster and i think the lesson learned from there was if you have the ability to do if you, again if you if you're satisfied with the outcome and liquidity event occurs, then maybe you should take some liquidity. However, the stock, I think, has bounced back pretty good. I haven't tracked it in the past past little bit, but it has bounced back pretty good if the company continues to execute. So I could also argue, like if I had held the entire time, then maybe I would have made more money off of Zynga uh, in the long run. So I guess the lesson is, you know, trust the power of your conviction. Maybe the one lesson I guess I would say is that sometimes the opinion you have as an employee of the viability of the business is different than the overall market opinion. Sometimes the market's wrong.
0: Of course, we all want to sell high and buy low, but sometimes you may hold a stock that's worth less than what you paid for it. This is when you may want to use a strategy called tax loss harvesting. It allows you to capture a loss from the sale of a stock and use it to offset capital gains this year or in a future year from events like selling any stock, including that of your company, or capital gain distributions from your investment portfolio. So when you're working at a company, generally you're very bullish. You're getting your paycheck, your bonuses, your stock compensation. You're excited about the product, but the analysts may feel differently. The reality is that unless someone has insider information, in which case that person can't trade, a stock's price is reflective of all public information. For an employee, I think there's a real bias to think that the stock price is only going up and to the right.
1: True. I think there's a bias that the company would be successful because you do have so much information about the company. One of the things that, that's a good litmus test, I think, is to explain the company's value to people that aren't as involved. Um, I would explain what Zynga is doing to you know people that maybe didn't know the company, or I would explain what ServiceNow is doing to people that didn't know the company, and if it resonates with people that are unbiased, then that, that's an interesting data point. You have to understand that the analysts and the market and the people on Wall Street, they don't know what's going on inside the company. All they're really doing is reading press releases, talking to people and trying to sort of game in their head what is actually going to happen and what products are coming up and how successful the company is being. And there are lots of businesses, and lots of companies that That message never lands. People in the public markets don't get it. And the stock does great. Um, There's other places where that isn't the case, that you need the analysts, and you need Wall Street, and you need everybody sort of across the planet to know what you're doing. It's hard to do. And it's hard to do until you've done it a few times and sort of run that mental model.
0: And along those lines, I know that you are really a cheerleader for your team. How do you keep your team focused on the product and not the stock price?
1: Um, I always say that companies have to be able to build teams and environments so people want to work there, even if the stock goes down 20, 30, You can't be building an environment where people are only happy if the stock is up 20, 30, 40, 50, 100%. So you have to think about how do you build the right environment? How do you build the right culture? How do you build the right feedback? How do you build the right opportunities for the team to keep them challenged, to keep them excited and to build innovative products, regardless of what the stock does? I do like to motivate teams around scale and I do like to express to them the challenges that we're working on. I think great engineering teams want to ship product. They want to ship quickly. They want to get something out into the customers' hands, the consumers' hands. And I think, you know, to be frank, they don't want to work with, you know, jerks. We can provide an environment where they're shipping production code in a way that they see incremental progress on a regular basis and they can see the impact that they're having. They're not off coding in a corner for two years that may or may not see the light of day. There are people that do those jobs, it's just not the teams I build. And then the third is, you know, provide an equitable, egalitarian environment, which allows anyone that has capability and anyone that has the right motivation, the opportunity to succeed.
0: What's your advice to someone working their way up to an SVP or CTO role, ideally from a personal financial perspective, since the landscape may have changed over the decades?
1: I guess my one advice would be know your net worth. I think that's it's super important for people as they move up the ranks, they tend to hunger for titles as opposed to hunger for net worth. So if I was to be coaching someone that was starting in their career and sort of moving up the manager, senior manager, director, sort of up the path, I would say know your net worth. Don't be afraid to be transparent with your manager in terms of what you think your value should be financially and how you should be financially compensated. And also, feel free to talk to your manager about what motivates you. Are you motivated by cash? Are you more motivated by equity? Are you more motivated by bonus percentage? Um, You know, companies have flexibility on this, and most teams have the ability to slightly, not, not like huge swings, but slightly modify compensation packages to match your motivation. I know when we're doing comp analysis, and as I've done comp analysis in companies in my past, if there are people that I know that are more motivated by, you know, base comp versus equity, that does go into the calculus when you're sort of doing, you know, semi-annual or annual performance reviews. So I just think uh, knowing what your motivation is, knowing what's gonna inspire you financially, um, and then not being afraid to bring it up to your manager, the advice I give.
0: On a related subject, human capital is the economic value of your experience and skills. One of the most important decisions people can make is choosing the right company to work for. What factors do you consider before joining a company? I
1: only consider one, to be honest with you, and that is the leadership team. You know, in, in real estate, it's location, location, location. You know, I, I think in startups or fast-growing, scalable companies, it's team, team, team. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think great teams can take product challenges, market challenges, um, all sorts of challenges and work through them together with trust and with clarity. So I I always look at the leadership team. Like I learned that early on, obviously not very, very early in my career because I was sort of uh, not in a position to sort of make those calls or to have that influence. But as I sort of went out into the world and started to explore different avenues, um, the number one thing I look for is the leadership team. Their experience, their way of presenting their company, their values, their culture, the way they put themselves out there, or don't in their marketplace. I think is super important. Uh, I don't take a role where I don't. But I think I'm not going to learn. Um, I'm always looking to learn. I'm always looking to do something new. Like I said, sort of find that tangent, find that next lever of experience. And I, I look for great people around the table or people you know in the in the leadership staff above me that I can learn from.
0: And then on the other side, when you're trying to recruit someone, how do you show all those things to the recruit? How do you show that uh, you have a strong team and it's a great place to work?
1: Yeah, I actually, not too much of a dirty secret because I've told a lot of people this, um, I actually look at the careers page of the companies. Are they clear? Uh, Is it well marketed? Uh, Is it Honestly, sometimes just a jumbled mess, and you can't quite figure out what they're trying to do. Do some of the job descriptions look dated and don't describe the same, you know, tagline of the company that is currently on the front page of the website? So, a real litmus test for me is to go to the careers page and just see how does the company represent itself to uh, attract talent. Because I think the most important thing in a company is the talent and the gray matter in the people. So that is that is the number one thing I, I look for. The other thing i look for is i then sort of go into the next level of detail and that is trying to see how does the company represent their culture and does the product because i always use their product before I, I join does the product as well as things like their social feeds their twitters their instagrams their facebook posts their linkedin posts does that match Is there a cultural sort of impedance between the two, between what's on the website and what's actually being said? I think that's another very important data point to look at um, to find if the team is leading successfully.
0: Wow, I haven't heard that before. Really fascinating. So you have been a mentor or advisor at at least eight companies that I've counted from your LinkedIn page. Tell me about your approach. How have you helped companies achieve success?
1: Yeah, I've been been very fortunate to been asked to be an advisor or a mentor for a number of different companies. And I think the way that that is played out is really sort of what we're discussing here. You know, at, at some of a more basic level, I talk to teams about how to structure engineering teams. I talk to leadership staffs about how to think about who the best partners are in the industry. I think about you know some of those companies have gone through MA and transactions. So I've thought that helped them think about how to do due diligence because I was on the venture side and I sort of knew that process as well. So it kind of depends on the stage the company's at and the challenges they're trying to address. And really the way I've, I've done it is I've just made myself as a sort of a, an advisor that's available for ad hoc conversations. So for me, I just want to be someone who can add value. And as long as I'm able to add value in one of several vectors, then I consider it a success. Um, as an advisor, you know, I do, and I insert myself in any way the company needs me to be inserted, generally it's a pretty light touch. But, you know, once a month or once every six weeks, I'm probably involved with the company at some level. But, you know, honestly, as an advisor, I consider myself more of a uh, one foot or a couple toes in the door, doing my best to help out uh, along the way. But all the success goes to the team, not to, not to me as an advisor. That's kind of what I'm trying to say. The team drives team it, and I'm just there to help and cheer and, you know, maybe whisper some somebody's here every now and then. But uh, to me, that the real success of the, is the company that I'm advising, and I'm just happy to help if I can along the way.
0: We talked earlier about OKRs, which is short for Objectives and Key Results. This is a metric popularized by the investor John Doerr. How do you use OKRs in your work?
1: Um, yeah, we, I've been using OKRs for three or four companies now. But I think being able to have clear objectives and clear key results for the team is super important. And also making sure those results are measurable. Um, you know, you'll know, you hear people say things like, we want to improve the performance of X. And my first question always is, what does improve mean? Does it mean it's 10% faster? Does it mean it's 15% faster? Does it mean it's 60% faster? What's the number? Or you'll say, like, we want to hire a plan. Okay. How many people do we want to hire this quarter? What's the what's the number? Is it a number that I can put on a plot somewhere? Is it a number I can I can look at and actually understand how it's going? Are there blockers? Are there are we on the right trajectory to hit that result every quarter? So yes, I, I tend to like to use objectives and key results. Objectives being the the vision, the strategy, the what are we going to go build, and the key results as you know, week by week measurements that'll help us understand are we on the way to get there? And if we're not, what are the trade-offs we need to, you know, alter course it to, to continue to hit it? Or do we just drop the key results or do we need to be more aggressive or less aggressive? And that's always a an active conversation. You know, it's the classic, um, you don't know how good you're doing unless you're going to measure it. So I just really believe in measuring things and um, making sure that those measurements are tracked over time, because I think it, it it focuses people. I think it motivates the team. I think it allows people to, to look literally at the graph Are we going up or to the right, hitting the right data points or not. If we're not, OK, what are we going to do about it?
0: So when we spoke before, you said you were constantly playing catch up and learning when you were in phase one of your company, your startup. Would you talk about your experience there?
1: Each of these phases has a fun part in my mind, um, but the real fun part in the beginning is, is learning and understanding what is the market you're trying to address, understanding what is the technology you're trying to build, understanding what is the team you need to put in place, and that's where like the synapses fire quickly in my mind to try and get things moving. So I think that's that's an exciting part of that that phase is really the creativity the. Uh, exploration, the pivoting, the finding out, well, we had this idea about X, but that was completely wrong. So let's go do Y, or maybe it's, you know, X divided by two or two X sort of thing. And I think that there's, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of thinking through how do we find that, you know, in the classic engineering talk, product market fit, how do you figure out, are we actually going to build something that people are going to want or enterprises are going to want or consumers are going to want? Are we building something that that makes a lot of sense and then testing it over and over and over again is something that um, is really, really exciting about that phase in my mind. And it's really about making sure that we contribute, understand, and then constantly evaluate and constantly rethink. Um, it's really the, the challenging part of that phase is being able to iterate enough to the point where you feel like you're ready to build and grow off of it.
0: The co-founder of Slack, Stuart Butterfield, famously pivoted from another company that was not doing so well. In your opinion, what should a founder do if they're in phase one and things are just not on a trajectory for success?
1: It's a good question. I guess my overall thought would be to seek advice. You know, I, I wasn't at Slack at the time, so I really can't talk to how they made that you know now very famous pivot from a game company to Slack. I wasn't involved in the company at that time. And they came in a couple of years later, but if I know Stuart and I know like how the company thinks, I would say they they spend a lot of time seeking advice, testing, trialing, and trying to find a way that the technology they built could be useful. So, what should somebody do? I would say just continue to be curious, continue to have a a growth mindset in terms of what could we do with this? Maybe the market we originally targeted is wrong, but there might be other markets out there. Seek advice, seek help, and just continue to think through, are there folks in your network that might be able to expand how you think about the product you're building? Are there folks in your VC network or in your investor network that might be able to challenge you and say, have you thought about healthcare? have you thought about automotive or you know maybe there's other markets or uh, other areas so if i was in that situation i would just continually try and think through who could i seek knowledge from who could i learn from who could i test my theories with as opposed to sort of being fixed into this is what i set out to do and if i just keep doing it uh, i'll eventually come out with the right
0: outcome do you have any experience in phase one at a company where it just wasn't working and then you realized it was time to move on to something completely different.
1: I did have one phase of my career where um, we were funded, we we're a venture capital-funded company called Telogis Networks, which right at the end of the dot-com bust was trying to move into infrastructure and data centers. It didn't work, and we ended up shutting that company down. And so yeah, I've had that experience. I think at that particular time, though, it wasn't what we're doing is wrong. That it was more like the entire market for this space, this entire industry, technology at the time, just isn't taking off and isn't growing at the way we thought it was going to grow. So we're going to go off and do something else. So I had the fortune of not producing a product that didn't have a product market fit, but I think I helped produce a product that the market just wasn't there anymore.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. Where can people find you?
1: Um, People can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, they can find me on twitter just at my last name and they can find me on slack
0: thank you so much alan thanks for listening to startup wealth today's show was produced by eric johnson from lightningpod.fm original theme music by philip reynolds price to learn more about jl franklin wealth planning and how we can help you protect your wealth mitigate taxes, care for your family, and pursue your dreams, visit jlfwealth.com. We are a growing firm. If you are an experienced advisor who subscribes to our approach and wants to grow with us, please get in touch. If you like the show and want more, please rate and review Startup Wealth in your favorite podcast app. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be construed as specific investment, legal, tax, or financial planning advice. Please consult with your professional advisor before taking any action based on the content discussed.